Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Romans chapter 3 tells us, tells us like it is. The bad news is really, really bad. And the good news is more wonderful than we could possibly dare dream. And so I pray, Father, that two things would happen for two different groups of people this morning. I pray first, Lord, for those who um, come into this place separated from you and under your wrath and outside of the covenant community of God's people, as well as those, Father, who come to us united to Jesus by grace through, through faith. I pray that each group would feel afresh and experience the overwhelming guilt and weight of condemnation that our sin justly deserves because of our rebellion against a holy God. I pray that the, the bad news would sink in. And then I pray too, Father, at the exact same time that the good news, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether for the very first time in a heart this morning or um, in, a, in, a, in a fresh way with someone who has been walking with you for many, many years, Lord, I pray that you would amaze us with your grace. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the, the stunning truth that you absorb the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. Lord, there's nowhere to hide. We are guilty before you, and yet, because of your grace, uh, Lord, there, there is uh, an opportunity in front of each one of us this morning to freshly repent, to freshly believe the gospel, and to live in the strength that you supply to the glory that you deserve. So I pray that you would come now and um, make those things happen for those groups of people. Each one of us are in one place or the other. Come now and manifest the power of your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word, and we'll thank you for it. Through Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Well, this time, it is my privilege to invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 57. Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 57, and if you'd like to use one of those red Bibles that are in your seat in front of you, there should be plenty of red Bibles to go around uh, this morning's text is found on page 872, page 872 in the Red Bibles, although we'll be both on 871 and 872 this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 57. I'd like to be about as forthright as I can be and just simply lay out my intentions and designs with this message, what I hope the Lord might accomplish among us over the next few moments together. Even in a congregation our size, uh, modest as our gathering is here this morning, it is undoubtedly the case that there are those among us who have come into this sanctuary who are not yet in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, truth be told, you all look fantastic sitting here in the sanctuary right now, right? On the outside, it's not evident who knows the Lord and who doesn't. Um, but let's not kid ourselves. Uh, just because I'm standing in a garage doesn't make me a car, right? And just because I'm sitting in a sanctuary, that doesn't make me a Christian. So my first desire with this message today is that I have been praying up a storm this week and this morning in particular that God himself will cause some of us to be born again through this sermon passage this morning. 
and he'll use Luke chapter 12 to do it. So I am jealous that God uses his word by the power of his Holy Spirit to awaken slumbering people among us this morning and stab us broad awake to the glory of Jesus in his word. That's my first desire. My second desire is similar, but it's for believers. As I look around this sanctuary, I I know so many of you, Uh, Many of you have a sincere profession and possession of faith in Jesus. You know that you do. I know that you do. However, what I do not know is how many of you are wrestling with a deep sense of conviction over indwelling sin in your life that you have yet to repent of. You love Christ and you belong to Him, but your interests are divided and Truth be told, if your life were to be exposed before us right now, you would be deeply ashamed over what we had find. And if that describes you, then you need to know that I have been praying. I've been praying for you. I've been praying that you would come to a deep place of heart-searching repentance over your sin, grief over your sin, sorrow over your sin, and a sincere desire to renounce your sin and continue to walk after Jesus. That's my second desire this morning. Now, in view of Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, 57 to 59, in preparation for this message, I have been educating myself on the, the relative merits of going to trial on the one hand and then the possibility of settling your case out of court On the other, one resource I consulted put it this way. It said, settling out of court is far less expensive than a trial unless you know for a fact that you have an ironclad case. And of course, that's the operative phrase. I think that's instructive. Settling out of court is a far less expensive thing than a trial unless you know that you have an ironclad case. So the question must be asked. How ironclad is your case? Or maybe we could flip it around more appropriately and and ask the question, how ironclad is God's case against you? Well, look with me at Luke chapter 12, verses 57 to 59. Luke 12, 57 to 59, Jesus asks, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, the judge hands you over to the officer, the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. In other words, when you're guilty, settling out of court is a wise decision especially when your accuser is the Almighty. Almighty God Himself. When you are guilty, settling out of court is a very wise decision, especially when your accuser is the Almighty. Now, taken by themselves, Luke chapter 12, verses 57 to 59, I think are admittedly difficult to make heads or tails of. Uh, Zachary Kruger and I were spinning our wheels this week working on study questions together. I didn't know where to take this these three verses. Taken out of context, these three verses have a number of interpretive possibilities. But when we treat these three verses not as an isolated unit, but rather as the crescendo that all that Jesus has been teaching up until this point, that's when we begin to see this passage begin to pulse with meaning. 
Let's not forget, Luke chapter 12 is one sustained block of teaching. Those listening to him would have heard him say everything that we've heard Jesus say in this sanctuary from March 3rd until today, April 29th. Luke chapter 12 is one sustained block of teaching that begins in verse 1 where Luke writes, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. And that Jesus launches into this teaching that begins in verse 1 and heads all the way clear to the end of the chapter, verse 59, our text this morning. So when we consider verses 57 to 59, in light of the 56 verses that come before, it appears to me that Luke chapter 12 boils down to two critical points of application. If you're wondering how to put together the last seven sermons in the life of this church, I think this is maybe a way to do that. All 59 verses of Luke chapter 12 boil down to two critical points of application. And these two points of application, as I prayed for us before we got going, they are for all of us. Um, If you've been with us over the past two months as we've studied this chapter, you'll remember that Jesus is simultaneously addressing both disciples and the broader crowd. And he's working back and forth between those who own him publicly and those who are kind of kicking the tires of the faith. So it matters very little in this moment whether you know Jesus or whether you don't. If you are in attendance today, Jesus is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. If you're with us today and you don't follow Jesus, these two points are for you. And at the exact same time, if you're with us and you do follow Jesus, these two points are for you. When you're guilty, settling out of court is a wise decision, especially when your accuser is the Almighty. So Luke chapter 12 boils down to these two critical points of application. Here's the first critical point of application. Believe that God is a righteous judge and that he has a clear-cut case against you. Point number one, believe that God is a righteous judge and that he has a clear-cut case against you. This is week 7 in Luke chapter 12, and over the last two months, we have carefully worked our way through this chapter, and if we've learned anything, we have learned that there is a judgment coming. Haven't we learned that? Each one of us is guilty as charged as we face this judgment, and week after week, we've studied our way through Jesus' teaching. We've been facing what we might call a fallen condition focus. A fallen condition focus. Each week we've been focusing on a different um, way that we fall short of the glory of God. Jesus has been bringing into the light of his blazing holiness some aspect of our character, some facet of our inner life that if left unaddressed would be enough to condemn us before the bar of his justice forever at the final judgment. So in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, we hear Jesus say, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Can you even imagine that? I hope that you can imagine that. Because Jesus is not proposing a future possibility Rather, Jesus is graciously disclosing a future actuality. This is coming. Think about it. Everything that you've ever said, 
Anything that you've so much as whispered, whether careless or calculated, one day every last syllable of your personal private communication will be made communal public information. Think back over the last 48 hours. Don't even think about your whole life right now. Just think about this weekend. How much of that do you want, would you want to go public? Anything wish you could say differently? Me too. You're guilty, and I'm guilty. Sins of speech, they're a big deal to Jesus because words are the temperature gauge of our hearts. You can finish this verse for me. Luke 6.45 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, God is a righteous judge, and he has a clear-cut case against you. In Luke 12, verses 4 to 12, Jesus turns his teaching to our common experience of social anxiety, what the Bible simply calls the fear of man. Remember, it was Ed Welch who says that the fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. I love that. I mean, our our culture likes to think of fear and worry and anxiety in the suffering category of life. That's the way that the world defines or classifies anxiety. That those of us who struggle with anxiety are more or less casualties or victims, but that's not how the Bible sees it. When Jesus teaches on the fear of man, he's not thinking suffering. Jesus is thinking sinning. When Jesus addresses the fear of man, he doesn't see a victim. He sees a perpetrator. And to demonstrate that, look at chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Jesus is saying, you think you're afraid? I will give you something to be afraid about. Jesus takes on the topic of fear of man. What we learn is that anxiety is actually a worship disorder. And that's why Ed Welch's book that I just quoted is is titled the way that it is. The title of the book is, When People Are Big and God is Small. That's what anxiety is all about. Social anxiety anyway. It's a brilliant title, When People Are Big and God is Small. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it to you. It's a brilliant title because it tells us the truth about our fear of man. Fear of man exists in our hearts because the fear of the Lord doesn't. And if you're here today and you struggle with the fear of man, you've got to know that God is a righteous judge. And he has a a clear-cut case against you. You're worshiping the wrong person. In Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34, Jesus tackles greed, avarice, and the overwhelming desire for more. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 contains his warning to us in summary when he teaches, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Perhaps you recall back in March when we studied this text that we concluded that Jesus isn't nearly as concerned with what you have as with what you want. This is an equal opportunity sin. It doesn't matter if you have a rather lucrative income or if you have a fixed income 
or if you have no income. This is not about your income. This is about your inner life. It's what you desire. It's about your heart. Covetousness is at the end of the day, just like anxiety, it's a worship disorder. It is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 speaks of the covetousness, which is idolatry. No wonder it's so offensive to God. And Jesus graciously warns us of it. It's a, it's a unique temptation, I think, for us living here in the West Tonka area. It takes very little for us to find ourselves longing for more material blessing than we have. And we already have so much. So much. Just think about the video that we saw a few moments ago. It's a powerful and pervasive sin. Greed is a problem. And Jesus threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in Him and content with what the Father provides for us. If you know that the desire for more is a besetting sin for you, then you also need to remember that God is a righteous judge and He has a clear-cut case against you. Chapter 12, verses 35 to 48, and then again in verses 54 to 56, Jesus focuses on the biblical teaching concerning his first and second advent. The word advent simply means coming. So here in these verses, Jesus is teaching believers as well as unbelievers about his first and second coming. Jesus' central concern here, I think, is represented in chapter 12, verse 40. Take a look at chapter 12, verse 40, where he warns his listeners that you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. I don't know if this comes as a surprise to you, but the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ is is no peripheral doctrine in the New Testament. Not by a long shot. And, and woe to any Christian or to any Christian movement that would seek to relegate the second coming of Jesus to second-class status of Christian doctrine. The Bible doesn't have it, won't have it. Do you know that the second coming of Christ is alluded to some 300 times in the pages of the New Testament? That's one out of every 25 verses. 23 of 27 New Testament books all reference this critical aspect of our theology. Furthermore, in the Bible, the second coming of Christ is consistently dealt with by the New Testament writers as an imminently practical doctrine. In other words, this is news that you can use. Uh, The New Testament writers are amazingly application-oriented when they talk about the return of Jesus. This matters. It has a vital bearing on our daily lives. That's why I'm so glad that our EFCA Statement of Faith says it so beautifully when it confesses the coming of Christ demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Now that is a fantastic statement in our Statement of Faith. The coming of Christ is our blessed hope and it motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, energetic mission. And Jesus just wants to know, how much do you think about that? I mean, really, when was the last time you thought about, much less longed for the return of Jesus to this earth? Guess what? If it's been a while, you may not be saved. And you say, no, wait a minute, that's, that's going too far. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I, I concur. But I would also say that I haven't gone too far. I don't think I've gone far enough. You know what Hebrews 9.28 says 
about who Christ is going to save? Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Who's he going to save? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. And if he were to return today, based on Hebrews 9.28, would he save you? Would he? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Or do you struggle even to care? Please understand this. God is a righteous judge, and he has a clear-cut case against you if this is you. Finally, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53 Luke 12, 49 to 53, Jesus warns of the division that he brings into this world. And not just into this world, but even into our families. In fact, especially into our families. Luke 12, 51 to 53 contains one of Jesus' most sober warnings to his disciples when he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, there will be in one house five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And here's the point. If you treasure Christ, and yet Christ is not a common treasure among every last person in your household, there had better be division. That's the point he's making here. I know it sounds like an odd point to make, but the idea of the truth of the gospel and our God-given mission to be and make disciples of Jesus is of such supreme importance that we can't just kill it in our families for the sake of peace. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So here's the question that ought to stick in your soul as you think about unconverted family members that you may live among, whether in your immediate family or your extended family when you get together for holidays and so on. Here's the question. If you're not experiencing this sort of conflict with unbelieving family members, how many compromises in your walk with the Lord have you made to make it so? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No exceptions. Now, I'm not saying that you go out of your way to be a jerk. Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that when it comes to your relationships with unconverted family members, if you're just minding your own business, you're enjoying Jesus, you are seeking their good, seeking to commend him to those that you love, there will be division. There will be division until they come to know him. Or have you stopped praying that they will? If you have unbelieving family and you aren't experiencing Luke 12, 51 to 53, something's missing. Big time. God is a righteous judge and he has a clear-cut case against you. I trust by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that what you're experiencing right now as we review the first 56 verses of chapter 12 is some good old-fashioned guilt. I hope the Holy Spirit is laying it on thick right now. 
I'm not of a mind that preachers ought to avoid inducing guilt in the heart of their congregations. I find guilt to be rather productive. Because first of all, guilt is good. It's good because it's the truth. We are guilty. Guilty in sin before a holy God. But guilt is also good because guilt is the prelude. It's the precursor to repentance. To repentance and faith and life change in the hands of Jesus. Perhaps you've heard me say it before, but indwelling sin, uh, your indwelling sin, my indwelling sin, is not our biggest problem. The presence of sin in our lives is not our biggest problem. It's the absence of repentance. As we close today, now that we've set our text firmly in its context, we can look not only at verses 1 to 56, but now verses 57 to 59 as the solution. Because when you're guilty, settling out of court is a wise decision, especially when your accuser is the Almighty. Chapter 12 boils down to two critical points of application. We've already seen the first point. Believe that God is a righteous judge. He has a clear-cut case against you. Secondly, beseech the Lord Jesus Christ for the amnesty that He and He alone offers you. Beseech the Lord Jesus Christ for the amnesty that He and He alone offers you. And no, I don't normally speak in King James English. This just worked with the alliteration. I worked hard to find another word that worked with believe, and this is the word I could find. You know what I mean, though. Look with me once more at Luke chapter 12, verses 57 to 59. I think this will help us understand the context now. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now here's what dawned on me, I think Friday morning working on this passage or maybe Thursday. Luke chapter 12 verse 57 smells of decision. It, it reeks of a watershed moment in the text. Luke 12, 57 has a lot of parallel texts in the Bible. What Jesus says has precursors in Holy Scripture. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says, Choose this day whom you will serve. In 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah says, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? I love it. If the Lord is God, follow Him. The Lord Himself in Isaiah 1.18 pleads, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Now bear in mind, Jesus has been teaching about the coming judgment more or less for 56 straight verses to this point. The entire chapter has the specter of impending doom hanging over it. And the apex, the very pinnacle of his teaching, Jesus asks his listeners, and by extension to every one of us this morning who's listening, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Do you hear the ironic twist here? This whole chapter is about judgment. And now he wants us to judge. He wants us to judge in view of the massive, airtight, ironclad, clear-cut case against us. 
But He wants us to judge. He wants us to judge what we would do had the opportunity, had we the opportunity to make a difference in the outcome of the case. And so he offers an illustration of first century legal disputes. And from what I can tell, things haven't changed much. Did, did you know that 95% of civil cases are settled out of court? I had no idea. I didn't realize it was that high. And uh, as I was on the website of the Minnesota Judicial Branch preparing this sermon, I, I read a place where they write this. This is, this is your government uh, at your service. Going to court is not always the best way to settle, settle a legal dispute because it can be costly, time-consuming, and it can be stressful. Not to mention, in our case, deadly. It's not just costly and time-consuming and very stressful. You'd lose. I trust you see through Jesus' thinly-veiled illustration here. God is the accuser. Luke 12, 57 to 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out. You will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The very last penny, by the way, uh, as you may see in your, your footnotes, if you have the ESV, the very last penny is, is a Greek coin known as a lepton. And it's the equivalent of one 128ths of a day laborer's pay. In other words, you're not getting out anytime soon. And it's hyperbole, you realize. You're not getting out. Jesus isn't suggesting that one could actually sufficiently discharge the debt of their own sin by themselves to a holy God during a finite period of time. We get our doctrine of hell in the pages of the Bible mainly from Jesus. Jesus is the one who describes hell as conscious, eternal torment for the wicked. Hell is real. It's real, and we avoid it or we minimize it at great cost to ourselves. Please don't attempt to wrest some sort of doctrine of purgatory from verse 59 as the Roman Catholic Church is wont to do. Don't try to air condition this verse. Looking for purgatory in verse 59 is not good news. But you know what is good news? Verse 58. In verse 58, Jesus says something that is filled for, with hope for every guilty sinner in the sanctuary, present company included. In verse 58, Jesus says, As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Wait, hold up. Let me read that again. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. We've heard some really bad news today, haven't we? But this... This, in verse 58, is undeniably good news. You and I, we are guilty. We are guilty of sins of speech, guilty of fear of man, guilty of greed, guilty of apathy about the return of our Lord, guilty of seeking to fake peace with unconverted family members because of the conflict that would make us uncomfortable and we want them to like us. Without a doubt, we are guilty. Guilty is charged. And yet, Jesus says, in spite of all of this, in Luke 12, 58, as you go with God 
Your accuser is God. As you go with God, your accuser, before the magistrate, make an effort with him to settle on the way. You mean he's willing to settle? Yes. Yes, he is. In fact, when Jesus took his last breath on the cross, he confirmed it when he cried out, It is finished. He might as well have hung there with his last breath and said, It is settled. I am willing to settle. He's a righteous judge who looks on the finished work of his son at Calvary and says to every guilty person awaiting the final judgment, settle with me. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. You see, when you're guilty, settling out of court is a wise decision, especially when your accuser is the Almighty. The two points of application that we draw from this verse, number one, believe that God is a righteous judge. He has a clear-cut case against you and me. But secondly, beseech the Lord Jesus Christ for the amnesty that he and he alone offers. And he offers it. 1 John 1.9 contains one of the sweetest and most vital promises you could ever hope to memorize. And if you ever memorized a Bible verse, this would be the one to make sure you have down. 1 John 1.9. This is a promise of assurance. Whether you are turning to Jesus for the very first time in this moment, whether this is the nine billionth time you've turned to Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 both offers and assures us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. In this verse, John tells us two fascinating things about the nature of God's forgiveness, of course. 1 John 1, 9 says namely that he is Faithful to forgive and he's just to forgive. God's faithful to forgive us our sins because he can be trusted. You know, if you've never been able to trust somebody in your life before, you've, you've finally come to one that you can. God's word is his bond and he's never broken it yet. He is faithful to forgive you your sins if you confess your sins. He's trustworthy. Secondly, John tells us that he is just to forgive us our sins. And he's just to forgive us our sins because he's arranged for them to be dealt with by time already served. Time already served by Jesus where he's hung on a cross to absorb the penalty that we deserve for six hours one Friday. Good Friday. Paul says in Romans 3.26 that the cross made it possible for God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So do you have faith in Jesus today? If you do, thank God for it. Furthermore, if you have faith in Jesus today, this text wants you to know, since the Almighty has settled your case out of court, what do you owe Him? Are you living a life worthy of the gospel? Worthy of the calling to which you have been called? What can your faith do In other words, might that faith be put into service in the days ahead through a life that is marked by greater integrity, who you are when no one's looking? That's Luke 12, 1 to 3. Courage and love toward others. That's verse 4 and following. Contentment with regard to your desires for more. An increasing passion for his soon return. A desire to make Jesus the issue in your family, especially among your unconverted family members. Do you have faith 
in Jesus today? If you do, what are you going to do with it? Secondly, do you want to have faith in Jesus today? Then listen to me. Ponder the message of this passage. You say, where does faith come from? Well, the Bible is very clear on that. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, hearing the gospel. Jesus is calling you to settle with your accuser this morning because one thing is sure, your sins will be dealt with one way or another. You can bear that punishment forever for your rebellion until you have paid the very last penny, which, by the way, will take an eternity. Or you can turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. You can turn to him today and receive the absolution that he extends to you right now in this moment. And you're with us, and if this is the desire of your heart, just come and talk to me. Uh, Roger Totman will be down in front on behalf of our elders right after the benediction. Come and talk to Roger. It would be our supreme joy to assist you in taking your first steps in the faith. We're here for you right now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the ground is indeed level at the cross of Jesus Christ. We recognize that whether we are here in the grip of your grace and we have assurance of our salvation or whether we have absolutely no assurance of our salvation and uh, we want to know what it means to to enter into relationship with God. I, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see that the two-beat rhythm of this text, first of all, Lord, none of us escape. Every last one of us is guilty. And if we had longer, we would simply look at more passages that would only serve to show us our guilt. Lord Jesus, you have, you have made that abundantly clear. We stand condemned before a holy God. And so that's why verse 58 is so beautiful to us. We thank you that you have made a way for us to settle with our accuser, to settle out of court. This is a trial that we do not want to undergo because, Lord Jesus, you, you've already sufficiently undergone it for us. Thank you for your trial where you were put on trial for sins that you did not commit and absor- absorbed a punishment you did not deserve. I pray, Lord, that that would give us, those of us who know you, great passion to increasingly and decisively put our sin to death to make new strides may there be new conditions in this congregation as we move forward together into the days ahead conditions for repentance and faith of confession to you confession of sin to one another living in the good of the gospel this is a safe place to confess sin so may we do that with one another and then i pray father that you would use a message like this to Um, to absolutely put a definitive stake in the ground for someone today or maybe more than a few people. Lord, I pray that you would grant the gifts of faith and repentance to those in the sanctuary that have not experienced them yet. Open the eyes of the blind. Help us, everyone, to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and the incredible opportunity before us to settle with our accuser before this case goes to trial. Lord, none of us knows how many days we have left. May today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.